Genesis chapter 4. Next, well, not next week. You know, next week we're having our chili cook-off next week. Oh, it's good to see Donna. Have you heard from James? How are they? Everything's... What's that? Was it nice, calm? No pro. <laughs> so he does know that there's a hurricane coming. And if you're from Florida, I just want to make this clear. If there's any damage done down there, it was not our high school group that did it. Just a joke. But it's, it's, really, it's really not a joking matter. I talked to some of the folks from Orlando that were here this morning. Boy, some major devastation is going on. And we want to keep them in our prayers. And just a heads up for some of you guys. I talked to the pastor of the Calvary Chapel in Orlando. He was with us this morning. And I talked to him this morning about possibly getting together some groups of men that could drive down and help them clear debris and, you know, cut up trees and just help them uh, do some of the recovery work and all that they're going to have to do. And so some of you guys, and any girls that like uh, an afternoon on a chainsaw, I mean, I don't want to discriminate. <laughs> but particularly you guys, if we could uh, maybe think in terms of that over these next couple of weeks, we'll, we'll talk more about that. I think we could really uh, be a blessing to a lot of the folks down there if we wanted to put together a couple of trips to, uh, to go down there and do some cleanup work for them. But let's pray for the, the kids. They, when are they coming back? Tomorrow. First thing, they're leaving early? Maybe, maybe not. Okay. Do they know they're having problems getting gas and all that? Yeah, okay. Well, they're just kicked back on the beach having a great time. Okay. <laughs> next Sunday night will be uh, our chili cook-off is next Sunday night, which is always a lot of fun. Dave, are you cooking that chili you're famous for? What is that chili you cook? It, it's not red. It's, what is it? It's green chili. And I can remember, we had a couple of spots back on the, some oil spots back in the parking lot. We cleaned off with what was left over your chili last time. Are you going to be cooking that chili again this time? Good. Well, so the chili cook-off is next Sunday night, so keep that, keep that in mind. Uh, be praying for me if you would. I'm going to be in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, God's called me to go and minister to the Yankees next week. So I'm going to be up in Detroit, Michigan uh, at a marriage conference, and then I'm going to be speaking at the Calvary Chapel up there next Sunday. So keep me in your prayers and keep my family in your prayers while, while I'm away, if you would. Well, one day, Adam and Eve, they were in the family SUV. They had the kids in the back seat, and they were driving down the road that were in right by the Garden of Eden. Well, they passed the angel with the uh, twirling, flaming sword that was guarding the tree of life. And, and just about that time, Cain leans his head over the, back, the front seat, and he says, Daddy, he says, why can't we live in that beautiful garden? And that's when Adam turned around and told him, said, well, son, we could, but your mother ate us out of house and home. But it wasn't just Eve that ate the apple. You know that. It was Adam and Eve. They both were guilty. 
And because they ate the forbidden fruit and disobeyed God, they were forbidden to enjoy the garden of delights that God had planted for them. And they were driven out into a world where they would have to fend for themselves and battle the thorns and thistles and obstacles and grow their own food and eventually return to the dust from which they came. And with the sin of Adam and Eve, both the first family and all of their descendants since were sentenced to live in a fallen world. And the struggle begins in Genesis chapter 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife. And she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Now, a more literal translation of this, of the Hebrew text, appears in the Schofield Reference Bible, if you have one. It's in the footnotes. And the Schofield renders it, I have gotten a man, even Jehovah. Recall back in chapter 3, verse 15, that God promised that a Savior would come into the world through the woman. You remember the promise, the seed of the woman would crush the authority of the seed of the serpent. It's possible that here is a declaration of faith on behalf of Eve. That Eve names her first son Cain, which means acquired because she thought that he was the fulfillment of God's promise of a Savior. I have gotten a man, even Jehovah. She believed that she had acquired God's promise when Cain was born, and when she brought that baby home from the hospital. But that impression didn't last for long. For as soon as she got that baby home from the hospital, that illusion was completely shattered, because Cain was a pain. Eve's baby, like all other babies, was self-willed and selfish. He threw temper tantrums when he didn't get his way. He pouted. He was rebellious and deceptive and envious. Have you noticed you don't have to teach your kids how to pout when they don't get their way? Have you noticed that? It comes natural. And Eve realized that Cain had come into the world just as self-centered as she and Adam had become. Guys, heredity is a problem. You see this double chin? Got it from my dad. Got insanity from my teenagers. <laughs> and I got my rebelliousness, as you did, from my grandpa Adam. The old saying is true. One bad apple can spoil the whole bunch. Adam ate a bad apple, became a bad apple, and filled a whole family tree full of bad apples. You and I are two bad apples on that tree. Genesis chapter 4 is the classic example of the truth. The apple never falls far from the tree. For Adam's own offspring demonstrates the awful destructive effects of his sin. It reminds me of the question, what did Adam and Eve do? when they were expelled from the Garden of Eden. What were they doing when they left Eden? Well, the question, the answer is they were, they were raising Cain. That's what they were doing, <laughs> raising Cain. And that's what mankind has been doing ever since. But Eve had a second son. Then she bore again, this time, his brother Abel. Cain wasn't a savior. Far from it. Cain was a brat. 
And slowly, Eve became painfully aware of the implications of her sin, not only for herself and for her family, but for the entire human race. And her despair was seen in the name that she chose for her second son. Abel means vanity. Verse 2 tells us, Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Abel was a shepherd, Cain was a farmer. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. There is a church up in Minnesota that publishes a newsletter. And a recent issue of that newsletter contained an embarrassing blooper. It read, Bible study on Genesis. Were Adam and Eve really naked in the garden? Come and see for yourselves. <laughs> Whoops. It is true, though, Adam and Eve were naked in the garden until they tried to cover up their sin by sewing together fig leaves. They figured that their redemption could be accomplished through the work of their own hands. They figured that just by turning over a new leaf, all would be right between them and God, but they figured wrong. Human effort, good works, charitable deeds, turning over a new leaf, religious rituals is never enough to blot out our sin and satisfy the demands of a holy God. God requires a sacrifice. You remember, the wages of sin is death. And so God killed an innocent lamb and covered Adam and Eve in fur coats. And I'm sure their two sons were privy to that background. When Cain and Abel came to offer their sacrifices, they were well aware of the truth that would later be spoken in Leviticus chapter 17. It is the blood that makes atonement. Well, Abel the shepherd, he sacrificed a lamb that God accepted. But Cain the farmer laid on the altar a horn of plenty that turns out, by the way, not to be enough. Cain assumes that his own achievements are going to merit God's blessing. Abel trusts in the blood of a sacrifice. Guys, there are two ways to come to God. Really, when you think about it, there are really only two religions in the world tonight. Only two religions. One says you can come to God on your own terms. You do this, you do that. You become deserving of God's favor. You work your way to God. That's one religion. There are a lot of other religions that fall in that category. The other religion, though, the only alternative to that is you can come to God on His terms. That God Himself died in our place. That God required a sacrifice and He paid the price that we could never pay. And through Him, through Him reaching down to us, we can be lifted up and we can be saved. Well, Abel trusted God and came to God on God's terms. Cain came to God on his own terms and offered the work of his hands as a sacrifice. And as a result, Abel was accepted, but Cain was rejected. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Now God saw that Cain was upset. And so we're told in verse 6, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, 
And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. The NIV renders that phrase, sin lies at the door, as sin is crouching at your door. Guys, sin is like a wild animal ready to pounce on its prey. And if not dealt with, it will wreak havoc and it will destroy. When Adam bombed in the Garden of Eden, an atom bomb was detonated in the world. And the fallout of that atom bomb continues to this day. Sin sets off a chain reaction that leads to death. Sin is destructive. Did you know sin causes more sin until it's disarmed? And how do you disarm an atom bomb? You confess your sin. You turn from your sin. You promise Jesus to do whatever it takes to turn from your sin. And then you trust Him. Not in your own efforts, but you trust in Him to reclothe you in His power and in His strength and in His forgiveness. Verse 8, Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Again, sin causes more sin. Cain was prideful. He thought his best effort should be enough to please God. And thus when his offering was rejected, his pride was wounded. And Cain grew jealous of his brother and lashed out in a rage and killed Abel. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the right answer for Cain and the right answer for you and me is yes, we are our brother's keeper. No man is an island. God expects you and me to care for the people around us. And God said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. It cried out for vengeance. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Notice Cain never shows any repentance. He never apologizes to God. He's only sorry for himself. He's only pouting about his punishment. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive. It's me, me, me. Look at what's happening to me. And a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. He just killed his brother and he's worried about somebody killing him. That's not repentance. That's being sorry you got caught, not sorry for what you did. Apparently, the ancient custom of avenging a brother's death may have dated back all the way to Cain and Abel. You kill one of my family, I'm going to kill you, so to speak. If that's the case, Cain is in big trouble because everybody alive at the time was Abel's little brother. Cain has got nowhere to hide. And so in verse 15, God spares his life. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Here's the first tattoo. A mark on Cain. And I suppose it saved his life. But for the rest of his life, Cain will roam the earth a marked man. 
Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. What an ominous expression. Cain bolted from God. He went out from the presence of the Lord. He separated himself from God and he strikes out on his own. And Cain's heirs, his descendants, will develop a society and a culture that are separate and apart from God. Cain went out from God and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Notice when you leave the presence of the Lord, the tendency is to nod off and fall asleep spiritually. You become vulnerable to danger. You, too, end up in the land of Nod. Just nodding off, not being aware. Separated from the presence of God always puts you in the land of Nod. Now, here's what had happened to Cain. Verse 12 tells us that, in essence, God cuts off his green thumb, so to speak. In other words, he'll no longer be able to till the ground. He was a farmer, but... God says, this blood you've spilt on the ground is now going to spoil your attempts to till it. And then he makes Cain a vagabond. He'll wander throughout all the earth. It's interesting. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7. Write that down and go back and read it later. Hebrews 10, verse 7. Jesus says, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. In other words, if you look closely, you can find Jesus... On every page of your Bible, did you know that? On every page of your Bible, you can find Jesus Christ. In the volume of the book, it is written of me, says Jesus. And here is a great example. Abel was a shepherd. He offered a lamb that had been accepted by God. He was hated for that sacrifice. He was hated without a cause. And he was killed by his brother, He died violently, and his blood now cries out from the ground. Who does that sound like but Jesus Christ? Jesus was the good shepherd. Jesus offered himself as the Lamb of God. He was hated without a cause. And who killed him? His own brother, the Jews, killed him. And Now his blood cries out from the ground, but it calls out for mercy and for grace. And if Abel is a type of Jesus... Who do you think Cain typifies? Well, the Jews. Think about it. They trust in their own righteousness instead of God's sacrifice. They become rejected by God. They become jealous of Jesus. They kill Him. They're made fugitives on the earth. And everywhere they've been for the last 2,000 years, people have hated the Jews. Just as with Cain, those who hurt the Jews, this is interesting, will also receive a sevenfold vengeance. Before Jesus returns at his second coming, you remember what happens for those, how many years? Seven years before his return. It's a period of time called great tribulation upon which God will judge the wicked world for their treatment of the Jews. Isn't that interesting? And during that time, guess who gets a mark? The Jews get a mark. Just like Cain, 144,000 Jews receive a protective mark on their forehead. Some amazing parallels here. Here, Jesus, Abel is a picture of Jesus, whereas Cain is a picture of the Jews. Verse 17, And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And here's the question that Bible skeptics love to ask. It ranks right up there with how many angels can you get on the head of a pen. 
where did Cain get his wife? And I really don't know why that causes people so much distress. Obviously, Cain married his sister. Tradition tells us, in fact, that Adam and Eve had 33 sons and 27 daughters. You could get lost in that family. There could probably be a brother or sister you didn't even know. Think about this. If you started out with 27 couples, and each of those 27 couples had six kids, within 100 years you'd have a population of 40,000 people. Cain had plenty of women to choose from to pick his wife. It seems that marriage between brothers and sisters is not intrinsically evil. It becomes evil when it's prohibited by the law of Moses out of necessity. By the time the human gene pool had been weak, by the time of Moses, the human gene pool had been weakened. And for health reasons, God prohibited the practice. But apparently in the beginning, the descendants of Adam and Eve were free to intermarry. And you see that in some of the early chapters of Genesis. Genesis chapters 4 through 6 is a valuable section of Scripture because it gives to us one of the very few pictures we have of the antediluvian world or the earth before the flood of Noah. And the Genesis account tracks the development of two families. The family of Cain, which was a worldly carnal clan, and the family of Adam's son, Seth, which was a faithful family. Well, Cain's family's listed first. And Cain built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Now, since God no longer allowed Cain to work the earth, he built a city. He becomes the first urbanite, the first city dweller. Cain becomes the first businessman. Unable to grow his own food, he now becomes a barterer. And he becomes a businessman and he begins to trade and sell. Verse 18 tells us, To Enoch was born Ired, which means wild man. His mom and dad had a problem. And Ired begat Mahujael, which means blot out the name of God. What an evil thought that was. Who would have named their child blot out the name of God? Notice next, And Mahujael begat Methusheel, and that name means those who are of God are dead. Notice the names get increasingly evil and blasphemous, just as does the family of Cain. Remember, Cain chose to separate himself, to leave the presence of God, and he suffered the consequences. Verse 18, And Methusheel begot Lamech. Then Lamech took for himself Two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zillah. One wife wasn't enough for Lamech. Well, I'm too much of a man for just one woman. And so he married two, Ada and Zillah. Here is the originator of polygamy. And of course, Lamech's punishment was inherent to his crime. With those two wives, he got two mother-in-laws. Chokes on him. Hey, Lamech was guilty of some serious sin. 
He was the first person to tamper with God's rules concerning sex and marriage. The name Lamech means bringing low. And that's what Lamech did to the human race by engaging in polygamy. Well, verse 20 tells us, And Ada bore Jabel. Lamech had my three sons, Jabel, Jubal, and Tubal-Cain. And all three names come from the root word, which means to produce or to invent. Lamech's three sons represent an age of technological advancement. Jabel was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Jabel was the first cowboy. He was the first cattle rancher. He was the first one to domesticate and grow animals for, for food. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the harp and flute. Jubal was the first musician. And as for Zillah, she also bore Tubal-Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron, the first metal worker. So we have the first cattle rancher, we have the first musician, and we have the first metal worker. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. It's interesting. Evolutionary propaganda assumes that the ancients were primitive people and that they gradually advanced in knowledge and know-how. But apparently that's not true. All over the world, there are ancient stories of advanced civilizations that were lost in a global flood. The legend of Atlantis, if you're familiar with it, may be a faint recollection of a world before the flood. I believe that the antediluvian world featured a highly sophisticated society that in some ways it might even rival our modern world today. Just study the pyramids of Egypt or Stonehenge in England. There are examples of incredible technology that existed in the pre-flood world. We know that Adam had a brilliant intellect. He was able to name all of the animals in a short period of time. It's probable that his immediate descendants were also very smart people. Now here's the picture that we get of this pre-flood world. The antediluvians, they were advanced technologically, but they were corrupt morally and deviant spiritually. Listen to Lamech's boast in verse 23. Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. In other words, Lamech is saying, God avenges sevenfold, but if you mess with me, buddy, I'll avenge myself 77-fold. I'm tougher than God. That's what he's saying. How arrogant. Lamech was a leading example of this defiance that existed before God prior to the flood. And this is more relevant to you and I than you might think. Because Jesus says in Luke chapter 17, verse 26... As it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. Well, how was it in the days of Noah? Great technological advancement, and yet corrupt morally, deviant spiritually, that combination. 
was what existed in the days of Noah. Jesus is saying that the end times will be characterized by that same combination. Great technology, but extreme arrogance and defiance against God. Can you think of a time where that scenario might fit? Today could be the day, couldn't it? Verse 25 tells us, And Adam knew his wife again. And you know, when it says Adam knew his wife, it doesn't mean that they had a conversation. It means that they had sexual relationships. And he knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. The word Seth means appointed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh, which like Enoch means dedicated. And we're told, then men began to call on the name of the Lord. With Seth, revival occurred. And over the next 1,500 years of human history, God will use Seth and his faithful family, his descendants, as a witness to his truth in this ever-increasingly wicked world. In fact, chapter 5 shifts to the family of Seth and to his genealogy. It begins in verse 1 with his father Adam. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Notice the sad digression here. Adam bore the image of God. You remember what was unique about Adam's creation was that he was made in the image and in the likeness of God. But here, Adam's son Seth bears Adam's image. A marred and a distorted version of what man was originally intended to be. Well, after he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years and he had sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. This was not God's original plan for Adam, remember. He could have lived forever, but God told him that if he ate the forbidden fruit, if he disobeyed God, he would surely die. Remember, the wages of sin is death. Well, verse 6. Seth lived 105 years and begat Enosh. And after he begat Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Enosh lived 90 years and begat Canaan. After he begat Canaan, Enosh lived 815 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 and he died. Canaan lived 70 years and begat Mahalalel. After he begat Mahalalel, Canaan lived 840 years and had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Canaan were 910 years and he died. Mahalalel lived 65 years and begot Jared. After he begot Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. And after he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Are you noticing the repetition? From Adam all the way down to Jared, over and over the phrase, and he died. 
And he died. And he died. Like father, like son. All Adam's kin shared in his sin and in his end. He died. The wages of sin is death. But there was one exception. Verse 18. Enoch lived 65 years and begat Methuselah. And after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. It's implied here that Enoch didn't walk with God until he had kids. And if that's so, the miracle of childbirth, coupled with the responsibilities of fatherhood, probably woke him up to his need for God. And that's not the first man that's happened to. It's amazing how the miracle of childbirth and the responsibilities of fatherhood can wake a man up to his need for God. Verse 24, And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Once there was a little girl who was reciting this story to her mom, and this is how she put it. One day, Enoch and God walked together. They took a walk together, Mom. They walked and they talked and they walked and they talked until Enoch finally said, Lord, it's getting late. I better go home. But the Lord said, Enoch, we've been walking together for so long. I believe we're closer to my house than to your house. Why don't you just come on over to my house tonight? Well, hey, that may have been just exactly the way it happened. I think we all should desire a walk so close to God, so intimate with God, that our hearts become more in tune with heaven than they become in tune with earth. Enoch means dedicated, and he walked so close to God that God decided to do a little rapture practice. And he snatched up Enoch. He desired his fellowship so much, he said, Enoch, come and be with me. And Enoch was not. In fact, Jude chapter 14 explains just how much Enoch knew of God and his plans. He was so intimate with God, he was privy to God's plans. In fact, Jude verse 14 tells us that Enoch was a prophet and what he prophesied. It says, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all. Isn't this amazing? Enoch was seventh from Adam but he was already proclaiming the second coming of Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? That's how intimate he was with the plans and with the knowledge of God. Well, verse 25. Methuselah lived 187 years and begot Lamech. And he begot Lamech. After he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. You've heard the phrase, as old as Methuselah? Well, this man has the oldest recorded age in history. And that becomes more than just an answer to a trivia question. When you realize that his father, Enoch, was a prophet, and that the son, Methuselah, was a prophecy. Methuselah was God's prophetic timepiece. Here's what his name means. When he dies, it will be sent. That's what Methuselah means. When he dies, it will be sent. 
And guess when Methuselah died? The very year that the flood came. He died the same year that God began to judge the earth with water. And of course, this highlights for us God's patience, God's mercy, God's grace. For when God ties a coming judgment to a particular lifespan, He doesn't choose some guy that lived 30 years or some guy that lived 70 years. No, He chooses a guy who lived 969 years. He chooses the one man who's lived the longest than anybody else. Obviously, God doesn't like judgment, does He? Obviously, God doesn't want to judge the earth. He desires that we repent. He desires that we be saved. That's why he says, when this guy dies, and he lived and lived and lived to be 969 years before judgment came. It's an example of God's mercy, God's patience, and his desire to save. Notice, too, there were three groups of people alive at the time of Noah's flood. First of all, there was the wicked. They are the ones that will drown in the deluge. The second group of people are Noah's family. They're the ones that are protected in the midst of the storm. And then there's a third group of people alive at the time of the flood. Enoch. He was the one that God caught up prior to the judgment coming down. He experienced the flood not on the earth but in heaven under God's protection. And note the typology here. For the next time that the earth will be judged by God. At the end of the age, during the great tribulation, there will also be three groups of people represented. There will be the wicked that will be judged in the tribulation. There will be the Jews who, like Noah and his family, are protected by God in the midst of the storm here on the earth. But there's a third group of people, the church, who, like Enoch, will go up before the judgment comes down and will experience that final judgment with Jesus by His side, under His protection in heaven. Well, Seth's genealogy continues in verse 28. Lamech lived 182 years and had a son, and he called his name Noah, which means comfort or rest. This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. After he begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old. And Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now excluding Enoch, the average age of the men in chapter 5 is 908 years old. And some of these geezers notice are still having children after having been alive for several hundred years. I mean, we're told in verse 32 that Noah sired three sons at the age of 500. Guys, it's never too late. Also, they all birthed sons and daughters, multiples. Now, how many kids do you think you could have if you were baby-making for over 500 years. This is why I believe that the earth was as populated before the flood as it is today, maybe even more so. And of course, the question comes up in our minds, how did people live 900 years? 
Remember in Genesis chapter 1, verse 7, God divided the waters from below the sky from the waters above the sky, above the firmament. And some scholars believe that the water above referred to more than just simple water vapor in the air, in the atmosphere. They believe that before the flood, there was a dense, highly compacted vapor canopy that existed in the upper levels of our atmosphere. The oldest book that's written, the book of Job, seems to speak of this vapor canopy in chapter 38, verse 9. There God says, When I made the clouds its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band. It's interesting that the latest theories on aging point to the sun as the culprit. Theoretically, the human body should be able to rejuvenate itself indefinitely. But around the age of 25, remember back to 25? Around the age of 25, the body starts to deteriorate. Some scientists believe that it's the solar radiation that sends a signal to the DNA that triggers the aging process. But if this canopy shrouded and shielded the earth from much of this harmful radiation, people could have lived much, much longer. The aging process could have been delayed you know, by hundreds of years. In addition, with this vapor canopy, the antediluvian world would have been a virtual paradise. Global temperatures would have been constantly right around 72 degrees. Storms, even rain, would be non-existent since hot air would never collide with cold air. The world before the flood would have been a, a tropical paradise. There would have been lush vegetation from pole to pole. The earth would have been a colossal greenhouse in essence. It's interesting that all around the world, there's impressive evidence for this idea. Fossilized palm trees have been found above the Arctic Circle. In Siberia, we found those frozen woolly mammoths with tropical vegetation still in their mouths. Which brings up the question, woolly mammoths, what happened to the dinosaurs? Well, I personally believe that the dinosaurs were among the animals on Noah's Ark. They lived in the antediluvian world, and they were contemporaries of man. We found cave drawings of dinosaurs put there by human artists. In fact, the Bible describes two animals that sound amazingly like dinosaurs. Go home and read Job chapters 40 and 41. There are creatures that many people would call dinosaurs alive on the earth today in remote parts of the world. In 1977... What some people think was a plesiosaur was snagged 900 feet underwater near Christ Church in New Zealand. Uh, you can go back on the internet and you can pull up a picture of it. I believe that Noah carried every kind of dinosaur on board the ark. But don't think of adult dinosaurs. He brought aboard babies or even dinosaur eggs. The extinction of the dinosaurs occurred shortly after they exited the ark... This collapsed vapor canopy and the upheaval that the flood caused upon the earth changed the topography, changed the climate, changed the vegetation. And the dinosaurs could no longer survive in the post-flood ecosystem. Well, chapter 6 describes the perversion that I believe led to the destruction of this antediluvian world. It says, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, 
and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Now understand, God is omnipotent or all-powerful. God is omniscient or all-knowing. God is omnipresent or all-present. He's present everywhere, but God is not omnipatient. There are limits to God's patience. There are boundaries to His long-suffering. And God issues a countdown here. He says, from this point, there will be 120 days until D-Day, until Judgment Day. And this was the time that Noah needed to build his ark. Let me admit that these verses that we've just read give rise to two different interpretations. Some see in verse 2, the sons of God as the lineage of Seth, intermarrying with the daughters of men or the family of Cain. They believe that the godly line of Seth compromised and took pagan wives. The only problem with that to me is that it doesn't explain God's motivation for wiping out the whole earth. And it also doesn't fit with the description we get of their offspring in verse 4. For in verse 4 we're told, There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now this is why I believe there's more going on here than believers marrying unbelievers. I've seen mixed marriages where believers married unbelievers, And I've seen their offspring. And I've never seen one of their offspring be a giant. Never. In fact, their kids look a lot like my kids. The phrase sons of God is the Hebrew term Beni Elohim. And the phrase appears four times in the Old Testament. And each time that it does, it refers to angels. Jude 6 speaks of the angels who, quote, did not keep their proper domain. What does that mean? Well, I believe that the sons of God in Genesis 6 are those angels who did not keep their proper domain. I believe that they were fallen angels. That a perversion of the human race began to take place in the antediluvian world. Fallen angels materialized in human form and began to impregnate human women, producing a distorted race of mutant humanoids. They were freaks of nature. They became common on the earth, these giants. Verse 4 calls them giants, which is a translation of the Hebrew word Nephilim, which means fallen ones. In Genesis chapter 1, we discuss that when Satan couldn't stop the creation of man, he tried to spoil it. And here he attempts to contaminate the human gene pool and engineer the extinction of humanity. And this was why God's judgment was so severe. God destroys the earth with water, not because a few people got out of hand. He wipes out the entire human population, not because of a couple of bars opening up on the corner. And starts over with eight people. He does it 
because he knows it's the only way for him to be able to save the human race. It's interesting that in every culture, there are myths of demigods, of beings that were half human and half divine. The, well, you've seen them in, in Greek mythology and in other places. Of course, myths are myths. But some of those stories could have actually been inspired by the events talked about here in Genesis chapter 6. Notice 2 verse 4 says that there were giants in Noah's day. And notice, and afterwards. Later, when the Hebrews spy out the land of Canaan, they report seeing giants in the land. And there the word is the same, Nephilim. Remember too, David's famous opponent when he went out to fight the Philistines? A man named Goliath who was a giant or a Nephilim. There is a Hebrew tradition. It's spoken of in the extra-biblical book of Enoch where these fallen angels are the ones who were identified as the ones who taught humanity the evils of black magic and the science of war and weaponry and how to abort unborn babies. It's also interesting that the subject of Genesis chapter 6 is now a favorite Hollywood movie theme. If some of you guys can think back to 1968, the movie Rosemary's Baby, it was based on this concept about demons intermarrying, taking human form and intermarrying with women and giving birth to a baby. More recently, the movie Michael that starred John Travolta. Michael played a lust-filled angel whose main desire was to hit on beautiful women Hey, this is demonic stuff. This goes back to Genesis chapter 6 and why God judged the earth with a flood. And this is why Jesus says, As in the days of Noah, so it will be in the last days, in the, com of the, in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. The parallels are interesting. In the occult, did you know the highest experience possible in the occult is sex with a demon? The offspring is called a moon child. This is the reason that God destroyed the earth with water. This was why his measures were so severe. He was trying to save the human race from this kind of demonic pollution. Well, verse 5 tells us, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was on evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. What a sad statement. And he was grieved in his heart. Remember the word grieved is a love word. You know, you can anger anyone, but you can only grieve a person who loves you. God is grieved because he loves us. Verse 7, So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. After the flood, God promises to never again destroy the earth with water, but He doesn't promise not to destroy the earth again. In fact, the Bible predicts that God will bring judgment to the earth a second time. The first time He judged the earth with water, the second time He'll do it with fire. And with the perversions we see in the world today, how can that judgment be far off? But Noah, we're told, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Notice, perfect in his generations. What does that mean? It, it could be that, that his pedigree 
didn't include the perversions that were going on in the world, this demonic activity that was occurring. That's why he was perfect in his generations. We're also told Noah walked with God. Noah was a man who loved God, a man who desired intimacy with God. Hebrews 11 verse 7 also describes Noah as a man of faith. Verse 10, And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. These four men, along with their wives, Noah and his family, are the nucleus from which God will start over with man and repopulate the earth after the flood. One other interesting point. Of the ten men mentioned in Genesis chapter 5, from Adam down to Noah, all but Noah was a contemporary of Adam. Remember, the first man lived to be 930 years old. He didn't die until Noah's dad, Lamech, was 56 years old. And thus, the creation story didn't need to be passed down from mouth to mouth to mouth to mouth over hundreds of generations. Rather, only three communications were needed. From God to Adam, from Adam to Lamech, and then from Lamech to his grandson Shem. Just three people linked the story of creation from the beginning to the post-flood world after the flood. Which, which is very interesting. Verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. You remember the boast of the other Lamech, Cain's kid, who killed a man and then boasted to his wives that I'll give vengeance 77-fold. That was just one example of the extreme violence that existed in that day. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Wickedness, perversion were rampant, and God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Verse 14, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms, or literally cubicles, in the ark. And cover it inside and outside with pitch, which made it waterproof. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Now, a cubit was the distance from the king's elbow to the tips of his fingers. The Hebrews usually uh, judged the cubit as about 18 inches. And so if we're using 18 inches as a cubit, that would mean that the ark measured 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. God's instructions continue in verse 16. You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. It's interesting that prior to 1858, Noah's Ark was the largest seagoing vessel ever constructed. Its three decks would provide over 100,000 square feet of floor space. To illustrate its capacity, imagine sitting at a railroad crossing, watching a train pass by in front of you. A train that had 522 livestock cars, each car packed with 240 sheep. That's the ark's capacity, 125,280 sheep. 
that's not bad. <laughs> and its six to one length to width ratio is by modern day shipbuilding standards the perfect proportion to survive rough waters. It's amazing. The ark would have never capsized. The ark was also constructed with a window at the top, 18 inches high. And many scholars believe it ran the whole length of the ark, whole length of the ship, providing fresh air and ventilation for the people inside. And they needed fresh air and ventilation inside the ark because you can bet it did stink. That's why it's been said, the church is like Noah's ark. At times it may stink inside, but it still beats the alternative. <laughs> and yes, it does. You'll find that the church is far from a perfect place. At times, stinky stuff happens. But you know, God's church remains His alternative to this wicked world. Ride it out. You'll be safe from the storm. In verse 17, God says, Behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Note this is not a local flood. This is a worldwide flood. And there is tremendous evidence for a universal flood. Did you know that some of the world's tallest mountain peaks, the Himalayans, for example, are made of sedimentary rock? Sediments that were laid down by water? When were the Himalayans underwater? We've also found marine fossils on the peaks of some of the world's tallest mountains. Marine fossils. And understand, a global deluge is the most validated event in antiquity. All cultures, Mexican, Middle Eastern, Chinese, even the American Indians have accounts of a great flood and a boat and a family who survived. Though the stories are not identical to the biblical record and obviously corrupted versions of that record, nevertheless, they testify to the same historical event, a global flood. Verse 18, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Only Noah, his three sons, and their wives survived the flood, along with two each of every animal, male and female. And it was the male and female that enabled the earth to be repopulated after the flood. And notice how Noah loads the ark. Verse 20, God tells him, Of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you, to keep them alive. In other words, Noah, you're not going to have to go out there and catch them. You're not going to have to go out there and lasso them and with your butterfly net, you know, and pluck them out of the sky. No, they will come to you. Isn't that interesting? Perhaps this was the origination of the migratory instincts that we now find in animals and particularly in birds. Scientists have a hard time knowing how that started, how that developed. Perhaps the migratory instinct was what God put in the animals and in the birds so that they would come to Noah. Verse 21, And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. And of course, to gather enough food for all of these animals, it would have been a gargantuan task. 
But again, another way that God could have helped Noah was to have a lot of the critters hibernate while they were on the ark. And if they were hibernating, they wouldn't have to eat. And it's interesting, hibernation and migration, two animals that have two animal traits that the zoologists have a hard time explaining, they could have been created by God in the animals as a way of helping Noah. Well, verse 22 confirms Noah's obedience. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. And I hope you and I this week will follow God with that same kind of exactness. All that God asks us to do, we did. And there we have Genesis chapters 4 through 6. You've got two weeks now to read the next section, Genesis chapters 7 through 11. We're going to get ambitious next week. Genesis 7 through 11. Make sure you read them before next session. Would you folks raise your hand right here? Would you raise your hand? You see this section right here, these folks right here? This is the question and answer section right here. And so if you have a question or an answer right after the Bible study, after we're dismissed, which is going to happen in two seconds, meet me right over here and we'll talk more about tonight's subjects. Father, thank you again.